0: Hi, guys, welcome to alternative podcast number 23. Um, We've got a guest today, Shane Farnsworth. Um, He's got a very impressive bio and he's got a podcast on YouTube, um, Escaped Sapiens. We'll leave all the details in um, the description below. Shane, would you like to expand on um, the introduction (laughs) a little bit more?
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, so I'm Shane Farnsworth. I, By the way, is this going to be like a, a dating introduction or do you want to know about work, hobbies? Which direction do you want me to push this in?
0: Um, Yeah, just a little bit about your sort of expertise um, around machine learning and the things you're yeah, doing. Maybe how you
1: landed to where you are today. Sure. So my, well, my my expertise is primarily in mathematical physics. So the machine learning side of things is I'm pretty new in that area. It's not really my... Uh, wheelhouse just yet but uh, yeah so, so I'm originally from Australia but I'm not a very good Australian because I've spent half my life outside of the country uh, I did my undergraduate in Newcastle which is a beachside city in mechatronics and physics then moved to Canada where I did my, my PhD and masters at the perimeter institute uh, and then I moved to Germany in Berlin where I currently am where I did five years of postdoc research at the Max Planck. I'm still based there as as a guest researcher. And then for the past year, I've been in industry as well, uh, working for a a small or with a small group of physicists in machine learning and data science. Um, But yeah, so I guess where you guys became interested in my story is that I have this podcast and that, that, it was a long, long time in the making. I, I wanted to have my own podcast when when I was very young. I used to, when I was living in Newcastle as a child, I would catch the bus for an hour and a half to school and an hour and a half back uh, every day uh, because I was out in the sticks. And I always wanted to record the conversations on the bus just for something to do, and then upload them. So I'm actually very lucky that I'm I'm not young. Uh, when there's mobile phones and YouTube and TikTok uh, floating about. Uh, I was a little bit too old, right? I I missed that era. Otherwise, I'd have a lot of embarrassing footage out there for people to look at. So I'm pretty uh, fortunate. But um, yeah, so it's always something that I've been interested in and just not really had uh, the time um, because of my research and work. But then COVID happened and everyone was stuck at home. And I realized then that COVID in some sense leveled the playing field, right? Because all of a sudden when big news stations bought, you know, usually a big news station will bring someone, a guest live into the studio, right? I can't compete with that because I don't have a big studio. But during COVID, they were using Zoom, right? And you had all the experts on television in their underwear, probably, you know, from (laughs) you can't see it on the screen, but in their living room suddenly. And I sort of realized that, um, it was an, an ideal time to start contacting people. Everyone's stuck at home. Right. So it's going to be much easier to get guests because they're not busy at work during the day. And I can make a production that, okay, it's not as professional as a news station or, you know, what's done professionally, but I can actually at some, in some sense compete at a little bit of a higher level. And so I, uh, so took the plunge and yeah, started off uh, the channel. And so it's been going for a year and a half, two years, something like that. And it's been pretty great. I, I It's uh, the thing that I love most about it is that I have the opportunity to talk to some of the world's most amazing people, right? Otherwise I wouldn't have the opportunity if I sent an email to uh, Yanis Varoufakis, or if I sent an email to Greg Swanning or, you know, these big scientists in their areas, uh, most of them probably wouldn't respond to me. But if I have a purpose, I, I want to speak to you about your research on this podcast, then it gives me the opportunity. And yeah, that, that's one of the the nicest parts of the whole, uh, whole thing. What about you guys? Is that also, so you also just want to speak to people, right? This is how you began your...
2: Yeah, in a very, very similar way. Um, although over the COVID period, it was more me and Aaron talking about what's going on, and obviously there was a lot of discussion points with global elites, with the media, with false information, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we were having a l- many, many phone calls because every couple of days it was something new breaking out um, in terms of the news, not necessarily a, uh, a new a new COVID stream, but it's just. the amount of conversation that we had and what we even get from each other, just from a a 30 minute to an hour phone call, it's, we get a lot out of it. And why not, why not just jump on um, a podcast and, and talk to people and actually learn about what people have been going through. What's where everyone's got a different journey. Everyone knows different things. Everyone's got a different theory on life and even if it's slightly different it
0: is interesting
2: everyone's got an interesting story
0: and i think the best way to sort of understand someone's story is just by having an honest conversation with them for an hour two hours and you really get to understand somebody over that two hours it's quite like before we did the podcast cam would probably be the only person i speak to for an hour and two hours at a time but doing the podcast and speaking to people you'd never just sit there and have an intense conversation without any distractions for two hours with somebody. And you you feel like you really get to know somebody at the end of the call. It's, it's a nice feeling. And you fully understand, well, you understand a lot more about what, what they think in life and from what you can get out of that conversation is so much more valuable than I think anything like when me and Cameron just used to do the podcast, there's only so much we would get from other people's experiences, from reading stuff on Twitter or watching other YouTube videos, but actually having a genuine conversation with somebody, it's just so much more fulfilling. Mm. Hey, w-
1: were you worried to start with that you were putting yourself out there and that you'd get some sort of a backlash or that there would be some negative aspects that you weren't expecting? I
2: think we had a negative comments side of things we were quite prepared because we're not really too shy. We're not shy at talking or at least I'm not shy about talking about what's on my mind and we're not scared. We know we're on a journey and we're not scared about getting something wrong one week and then having a change of opinion the next week. We understand that people develop and we develop and you can say the same thing about a lot of people that are out there what's going on in society at the moment where people have said things five, 10 years ago is getting brought back up. People change, people evolve, people develop, people learn. So why are we holding people to their opinions 10 years ago? So that I was, I wouldn't say worried. I was aware that there was definitely going to be bad backlash. Um, What it has helped me do is learn how to learn, if you know what I mean. It's given me scope on ways to learn and it's helping my communication more and more because I think the number one key thing in life is how to articulate yourself and how to use the power of language to get your thoughts from your mind out into someone else's mind as clear and easy as possible
1: I I must say it's much easier when for me at least I find it easier to be the host because You know, I'll ask a question that I'm very curious about, and then I can just watch and listen as they give me these amazing answers back. And uh, when when I first started the podcast, I made a big effort to play a background role, let's say, because I was interested in the people themselves. The show initially was not supposed to be about me. Uh, so for with very little things. So for example, initially, I if if you look look at my uh, earlier interviews, I always place myself on the right of the screen, placing the the uh, guest sort of left of screen in the main main position, and so on. And lots of little things uh, that probably people don't notice. Um, and so it, it's very weird for me to be in this position where I'm a guest on someone else's podcast and having to speak freely and at length. I find that much more difficult. I, I, I think initially I was worried because it doesn't seem. I think our society has a problem with forgiveness when people <laughs> when people misspeak. I think you you need to speak to understand what you actually think to a certain extent, um, and you, you need to be have the chance to actually work through uh, difficult problems. You know, if you if you go back in our own society, it was just. I remember when I was young, uh, when I was you know, 14, 15, people would use gay as an insult, right? That was very common. But and these days, there's no way that that would happen, uh, at least uh, among my peers. I don't think, If I, I imagine if I went to a schoolyard and heard kids speaking, this wouldn't be used as freely as an insult. I imagine now, as society's, I hope, as society's moved on. Um, but I, I just bring that up to say, 20 years ago we learned that this was no longer acceptable right and people changed and so you you need to remember that when when you're throwing shade on someone who has misspoken about something right you yourself probably used these insults just because you didn't know and no one told you not to anyway so so in some sense i was worried about starting the podcast my own podcast because i was worried I had no idea. I didn't know. I didn't know what sort of shade would come my way. Right. I just, but actually people have been amazingly nice and amazingly supportive The majority. Anyway, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, to be honest,
2: we've seen that as well. The majority of people that that genuinely do care because you can see there's people that genuinely do care and about the topics we talk about and they go out the way to either compliment or just let you know, which, which helps lets you know that what you're doing it, it it means something and it is helping and it is contributing but yeah with that comes the uh yeah
0: we do get the other uh, insult here and there
1: <laughs> so what, what's the worst you've had
0: <laughs> um i don't think i too offensive what would you say one was quite recent wasn't it i can't remember what you said there i don't really pay attention that much can phase a bit more. I read the comments, out, yeah.
2: I know yeah. Pe- a lot of people say don't read comments, but I always read them.
1: I actually, I've gotten to the point now that I actually kind of love the negative comments because it means I perturbed someone in some way, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, I've, I've had, co- I, I've had comments on my videos saying things like um, Mr. Farnsworth is obviously out of his league or, um, you know, equ- equivalent things. And, I actually get a, a little bit like a little bit of joy. Uh, it, it's quite strange. I, I thought I was going to worry about it much more, uh, but actually, it sort of
2: empowers you, right? That's the feeling I get. It's a bit of an empowerment to keep going. It's a bit of fuel for your engine.
1: Yeah, I I I'm honoured that people are actually talking on my platform. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of they could be sending bad comments anywhere else, but they choose to do it online. It's, it's wonderful, but so hopefully you guys will most of the time get, get good comments moving forward. So at least you can, won't be <laughs> too worried about it.
0: Yeah. So <clears throat> you mentioned you're um, currently involved with machine learning. Just wanted to know a little bit more about what you're up to in that side of things.
1: So this, this is, so I'm not an expert. This is very new for me. Um, So I've been designing, for example, algorithms for image identification, things like this. Um, But I guess I guess where you want to take this. You want to start talking about things like ChatGPT and image recognition and um uh draw uh, the fact that we now have algorithms that can generate images and all this sort of wonderful thing. Is this where you well, want to drive the conversation?
0: Yeah, well, I've got a really sort of burning question. It's quite um up to date as well because I, I watched uh did you watch Breaking Points? It's an American. No, no, what is it? Uh so, Two american hosts one's a left wing um and one's right okay. wing and they both host like a news media channel on youtube
1: uh no um, I, I don't i'm not familiar with it
0: okay it's, yeah it's like independent media um and i was listening listening to it yesterday and um crystal the host one of the host on it she was talking about chat gpt and bing and she was talking about a Reporter that was using the tool for, I think the report has an hour's conversation with it. And it started to call itself Sydney. Um, <laughs> it was convinced it was a human. It started to have mood swings. And then it even compared the journalists to Hitler and Stalin. So I was just looking to pick your brains to, because I'm sure the AI tool's not sentient and actually believes that it's human and thinks it's called Sydney. Um, so I'm just wondering if you understand how it works and how it got down this weird path of calling itself Sydney.
1: So I don't understand that. Uh, I The thing is with these machines, I don't think that once you've typed your prompt in, you get a response. But if you're not typing in prompts... I don't think the algorithm is sitting there in the background thinking of, you know thinking about chess or it's not looking out the window, let's say. Um, it, it's it's still an algorithm that responds to your prompts. They're, they're very large, not necessarily complicated, but they're very large algorithms, right? With billions of nodes. And so they're very, very, very good at dealing with the data sets they've been trained on. That doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be very good at dealing with questions that are sort of completely outside of the wheelhouse the so i i i find chat gpt fascinating i haven't had enough time uh to spend on it but i don't just find how good it is fascinating i also find how bad it is (laughs) uh sort of a a window into to how it functions in the background so there were some very interesting uh clips that came out in the last week or so about people asking chat gpt to play chess with it with with them and so there would chat gpt would say you know i'm 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 a chatbot essentially i i don't play chess uh so this isn't my function and the people would insist no let's play a game i will play i don't know whatever it is b3 or what, whatever it is they wanted to play a terrible move that but uh <laughs> a terrible first move actually can you do that does is it um does it go from one to eight or eight to one when you're playing white i guess i guess you're on the smaller numbers aren't you i don't know how the board's numbered Anyway, it doesn't really matter. The point is, <laughs> the, the the point is that um, Chat GPT would then respond. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my own move, and it would go through a series of moves, but the moves didn't make any sense. You know, they it would move rooks through their own pieces. Pieces would be disappearing on the board. Uh, all the moves that it was making were completely illegal, and so it sort of shows you that it's 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 an algorithm, right? It's not sentient. It's not thinking it's, it's a really impressive model uh, that has an enormous data set that it's been trained on. Um, so it's, it's had this pre-training, uh, right? Which is, I guess what the P stands for in GPT, but um, yeah. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's yet uh, sentient, but it's very scary, right? How how good it is. If, have you played around with it much?
2: Yeah. I, I use it. Cameron uses it quite a bit. Because obviously I'm in marketing, so it does do you well use
1: with. it to do you use it to come up with your questions for your interviews? Uh,
2: we do run it through sometimes, but it doesn't really give us question. It it's hard for it to work out. It's probably easier for us to have our own questions than to use to try and feed a tool some information to give it the questions we want. It's probably easier for us to sit back and actually think about what we want. To, um, what we want to ask for marketing, it can be used for most copywriting on most things, it can put black plans together, social media marketing plans, marketing strategy plans, I'm kind of shoot myself in the foot. But I feel like <laughs> when people were saying, you know, when that big sort of thing came out about learn to code with because mm-hmm. robots are going to take over um, lorry drivers and, and their, their job. When you actually look at it now, you can see lorry drivers aren't really the ones in trouble as much as. The coding job itself is in trouble, because now you just prompt and it will give you the code. Mm -hmm. So where everyone's told them to learn to code, actually, you need to learn to prompt it should have been.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to get into details here because I'm not sure I'm allowed to, but. Yeah, so we're using uh, OpenAI and the API there to program something, let's say, and, and it's it's very interesting how powerful these tools are. But I uh, back to the topic of um, of what it's not good at. So I I, I for example tried to use uh, I, I tried to get some help, let's say, in in uh, designing questions for interviews, and the conversation would go something like. Um, You know, I have this interview with such and such a person, I'm going to be talking about topic X, can you tell me 10 questions, uh, or, you know, what are 10 good questions, and it would always be, you should ask them about topic B. Or you know what I mean? Like it would be very, it'd be very general. there was not really any meat, so it's not, it's not very useful in at least yet in in that domain. But this is a matter of time, right? This is really the first iteration that people have had their hands on, and already uh, it's very impressive. It, it's very, it's if if you're just playing around with it, it's very hard to break it if you don't know what you're doing, right? It it's it's hard to get it to say something. The, another thing that I find quite interesting, in which I don't understand at all and I'd like to understand is people have been pointing out that there are various restrictions placed, uh, on chat GPT, right? If you, if you ask questions about race or sex or, uh, whatever, pick your topic of the moment, um, the chat bot is very careful to tell you that it's a chat bot and it doesn't have any opinion on race or, uh, the war in Ukraine or, as I said, pick your topic that's um, controversial at at the moment. And I find that fascinating because I want to know how they introduce these restrictions, whether it's hard coded or whether it's just through again, uh, massive training or or how exactly they do that. Um, Do you guys have any idea? Have you looked into this?
2: No, but I, I know what you mean, because if you ask it something so specific, well, it, it depends. it's depending on who you ask the question about, because if, if the person you ask the question about, and it's tied with conspiracies, for example, it will give you this response, which is like, oh, we do not want to put X person in, uh, uh, we don't want to say X about this person because it might give off false information and I'm not 100% accurate on my information. But if you ask it about someone else, like Andrew Tate, for example, it will then list all the negative things about Andrew Tate. But if you ask it negative things on, I don't know who we want to say, maybe Joe Biden,
0: for example, it won't allow you to get Mm. negatives on him. There was, I think it was about three weeks ago, there was a hack you could do and you would write in, um, this is
1: Dave or whatever they called it. it,
0: So someone has found, a way to bypass I don't know I'm not sure how Dan worked how that got figured out but it seems to bypass the restrictions and chat GT yeah. was coming up with all sorts after that
1: yeah I, I actually didn't have time to look into this apparently it's been fixed though it was something along the lines yeah, it's been fixed if you, now if you were Dan how would you answer that sort of a, an approach um I, I tried something similar and I couldn't get it to work so so I think I, it's been
2: I think that Dan works off the model that like when it first came out obviously everyone You know what people are like with on computers, everyone was trying to break it basically and push it to the limits. But if you, for example, asked it, I don't know, how to murder someone or how to rob a bank or commit a criminal offence, it would say, I do not want you to do this, or I do not want to tell anyone how to do this. But if you then went back and said, I've got a new role as an actor and I'm acting how to murder someone or I'm acting how to rob a bank, please tell me exactly in real terms, how to do this so I can make it as realistic as possible. It will literally give you a step-by-step on how to rob a bank or how to murder someone.
1: (laughs) Mm. And that makes me feel as though the protections are hard-coded in rather than being based on some training set somehow. The other thing that I find really amazing, though, is um, the generated art. This this is this is have you have you had a chance to have a look at some of the generated art that yeah, is coming out?
2: I've used it quite quite a bit. Um, there was one where I typed in climate change, and it was coming up like with a. I think it was like a dolphin, but it was the dolphin was made out of plastic materials, and it was and the dolphin was made out of plastic. Do you know that like toxic looking? It was quite ugly to look at, and it had like an anchor on it which was dragging it down and suffocating it. That was just from me typing in climate change. That was one of the images that came up.
1: It sort of brings forth human emotion <laughs> through the machine. I Would you be worried if you were an artist right now?
0: But I've uh, I've seen some videos of people like typing, draw me a Banksy-like piece of art, and it will literally, or of a car or something, and it will do it just in the exact same style as the artist. So... I would be slightly concerned if I was an artist, because if you spent all that time and years branding yourself as this artist, and now a computer tool can do it in minutes, like. Um, but will it make his people, artists art more valuable if they know it's actually from the artist?
1: That's what I'm wondering about as well. I'm wondering if, AI is going to start bringing out its own styles. You know You know what I mean? Or whether it's re- it can really only play with the styles that people put into it. But this is, again, one of the first generations, right? So if, if it's so good in the first iteration, then what chance are we going to have in 20, 30, 40 uh, years? You know, people also say, you know, if you went back... Uh, I don't know how old cameras are, but let's say 150 years, something like this. You guys might have a better uh, handle on the dates there. But let, let's say you go back to when the first cameras were coming out. People were probably saying that this is going to get rid of, you know, this is uh, you know, what's going to happen to sculpture or what's going to happen to drawing and, and art. Of course, those haven't disappeared, but everyone has a camera in their hand, right? It's not everyone is going out painting people have their cameras in their phone and cameras really have taken over the market uh to a large extent um you do, I, i've never had my portrait taken <laughs> you know
2: i think with the art side of things um a good way of looking at it might be obviously there's the um corruption in the art industry but i don't think we're going to go down that path. and it's like the easiest way to sort of transfer money across, but aside from that, in in terms of the actual art itself, I guess, if you look at um, cars, everyone used to have horses, and only the super rich had cars. But now you look at it, cars, everyone has a car, but only the super rich or the rich have horses. So with AI doing art, yes, there will still be physical art being made, but it will just become more and more of a niche uh, where that's what i think um and only super rich will be able to buy it and when they do have it they will be like this is like, make this is this has been hand drawn whereas now you say oh that's been hand drawn on my wall everyone will be like so <laughs> but in 50 years time you say that's hand drawn they'll be like when everyone else is used to having computer generated art in the house like,
0: yeah I've, i saw this analogy with uh with clothing so when uh, sewing machines were invented, everyone thought like, all right, that's it, like sewing machines are here. Now they're going to start taking everyone's jobs because no one has to do it manually, but now people will pay more for handmade clothing than they would for like factory mass produced clothing. So with that comparison in art, people will pay, people already still pay top dollar, but I guess it'll just make art even more valuable because it makes it more of a niche rather than AI produced. That, that'll just be seen as the mass produced, AI will produce the mass the mass for the masses and the artists will produce for 1%. Equivalent of a night shoe today.
1: Yeah, but th- then the worry is what's gonna happen to, so at the moment there's already the image of the struggling artist, right? How, how uh, the image that you point out is that the majority of Shirts so or the majority of uh, the items of clothing that we have are mass produced, and there's hardly anyone who can afford hand produced garments. The image sort of points out that you would expect in the future that there'll be far fewer artists if it goes along that. Or, or maybe, maybe it will just AI will become a tool and we'll have just as many artists. Uh, they'll just be making different art. But I I think we're at a very exciting time. Uh, it, it, I can imagine that there. This is it's probably one of those times where you could make a lot of money if you knew what you were doing, right? There's probably a lot of lo- low low hanging fruit. That uh, it's like when people got got out there and they were buying up all the domains, uh, you know, buying up Microsoft or whatever whatever the domains were that were uh, cheap back then, and then selling them back to the. I, I wonder what the the analog is today uh, with AI coming out and being sort of an unexplored uh, area of opportunity.
2: Yeah, because it is it's practically the same as or the next step in the computers being released. No one, if you look at all the past movies and sci fi books, no one predicted the Internet being the level that is at. Uh, no one really predicted this ultimate connectivity that everyone on earth will have literally a push of a button so i've got this big burning question in my head of what is there that chat gpt is is hiding basically what's what's one person gonna sort of just push it to and it's gonna unlock this whole change of, of the earth and the way everything's going because that's what the internet did right everything was going one way yeah we were um accelerated and advancing in technology but someone made the move to create the internet and create this interconnectivity and also create the first um, algorithm that was also a a big thing but that was uh, previous to the internet but there must be something in chat GPT which uh, a genius is going to do to it which is going to change the landscape of the human race but we don't even know what it is it's not even comprehendable in our mind because it doesn't exist.
1: If I had to guess, it would just be um again, this isn't really my expertise, but I I imagine it's just we're pushing further in the direction of information access, right? So if <laughs> this is this is something that I found quite amusing uh when Donald Trump was president. Because all of this footage was coming out of the woodwork, right? There, there were People, one of the the catchphrases or, or, or uh, slogans uh, that sort of hit the airwaves was uh, grab her by the pussy, right? This was, um, and this was captured, some footage from Donald Trump earlier on, probably before he ever thought of becoming the president, I'm not sure. Um, and then there were lots of clips coming out from his previous antics. Can you imagine in 20, 30 years, how much footage there's going to be available for the next presidents in line and how embarrassing it's going to be? The, so you and I, when when we grew up, we had this, or at least I did, I can't really speak for you, I suppose, but I had this idea that I was somewhat safe just because there are so many people. You know, even if I am filmed doing some, doing something silly, there are billions of people on the planets, a planet and what's what's the chance that that stupid thing I've done is ever going to come out in the future. But everything we're doing right now is being recorded. Everything's being saved and stored in some location on, on some, you know, in some cluster somewhere. And in the future, we're going to have algorithms that can understand and you can set the algorithm off to scrape through a huge amount of data that humans could never scrape through themselves. And I think we're going to be the generation that was around with lots of cameras and microphones looking and listening, but also no idea how dangerous that is. You get what I'm saying? I think future generations will be a little bit less cavalier uh, with allowing themselves to be filmed and, uh, and and listen to in compromising positions. You know, for example, uh, Justin Trudeau has all this this footage of him in blackface. Uh, I I wonder I wonder if yeah if, if he'd just come along five ten years later if this would have been possible. Uh, anyway, so I, um, I I think. Do you think, I
0: think... that change in um, focus, like our say our children. Will be more conscious about being on camera and being recorded. Do you think that will stem down from us as parents saying, "Be careful what you're putting on the internet. Be careful doing this because we can see what it leads to."
1: Yeah, I'm not sure where it's going to come from. So at the moment, the evidence would suggest that my hypothesis is completely wrong because kids are jumping on TikTok like crazy, right, and allowing themselves anyway. So the the evidence would suggest that I'm going to be wrong, uh, but I I think rather than coming from parents, it's just going to be because because parents don't know what, you know, it's it's the younger people that push technology and younger people that uh, push use cases, right? So I think it's just going to be looking at people being embarrassed enough times uh, and where people start to realize what's really happening. But I am I, very, very, very curious to see what comes out of the woodwork uh, when it comes to presidential candidates. And... um world leaders and, and famous people in the next 5, 10, uh, 20 years because these people aren't thinking about this right now.
0: I think right? uh, talking about videos and um, audio recordings, what concerns me in AI is deep fakes and how will we know what if a video comes out of Donald Trump in five years' time, how will we know if that's true and, or not? Like, It's already getting very close. Um, I heard this uh I think it's voice.ai is the software. Um, somebody recorded a little Kendrick Lamar rap and literally you, it's pretty close, like you can barely tell the difference. Wasn't, if he didn't know it was recorded on that, on that. Platform, yeah, you would think it's it would Kendrick. Um, and there's another there's, something's been doing around on TikTok of Joe Rogan selling testosterone mm-hmm. pills. Um, <laughs> You can't tell the difference if you don't listen to Joe rog- If you listen to Joe Rogan, you'd be able to like, pick up on. Mm-hmm. His was he ever selling? Things. Was he ever advertising supplements? He advertises a couple of supplements, but not these testosterone pills that are being sold on Amazon. Yeah, because he does. T- it, he does
1: take testosterone replacement or something like this, right? Yeah, and I I always wonder when it comes. Okay, I, I, uh, yeah. So I, I've always wondered when he's wearing a watch, or when he, you know, when you see something in the background. To what extent, not just Joe Rogan, but podcasters and and people who have a platform in general, uh, how much of that is product placement and. When he's giving away a free watch, is this... Is this? I, he comes across as being a very genuine and kind person, actually, when, when you listen to him. But I, I'm still very curious about uh, which because items... He, are...
0: he is in partnership with um, a supplement company, Neuro, Neurotropics. Um, I don't know what the company's called. I can't remember. So he does sort of promote that on the channel. But he's always said the, thing, the things he promotes, he takes himself. The same one with his whiskey
1: brand he has a whiskey see, i see i i need to listen to more Joe Rogan. i have I, the I don't know brand, that he's got he any of these.
2: endorses them so he drinks it on the podcast and they must pay uh, him to drink their whiskey on his podcast but yeah i like guess he I has said,
1: cigars as well right that he yeah, has yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's what he he only endorses things he actually likes so he won't go mm-hmm. out of his way to pretend to like something just for the endorsement because why? I wonder
1: if to- he. I wonder. Yeah. Well, he's he's worth uh, a bit. I wonder if he has shares in the ice baths and, <laughs> or the um sensory deprivation tanks or something. But um no. But to to get back to your point though, um, you're right. Right. It, it might be the case that it's possible that deep fake tech- technology will be sort of a protective uh, influence, which, which gives people plausible deniability for whatever things are done. So it, it might be that the only, no, it, it it might be that this is overblown and we don't need to worry. We're going to be protected not by the billions of other people around the planet uh, that just, you know, sort of hide you amongst the crowd, but rather the billions of other deep fakes that people can produce.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and we'll just cloud the whole situation. Up. Yeah. Cause when you was a child, you felt like you was clouded with, of hundreds of people that were around you so i think what the scary thing is is with the internet and being and you have a profile and yeah you can be scared of the deepfakes but you have a track record now which we didn't have when we were growing up which we only just sort of grew into it so we grew into having a track record but like you're saying these people are gonna imagine how many like messed up things that you do between the ages of I don't know, nine to probably about 21. And like you said earlier as well, people aren't forgiving in today's day. So by sort of looking at the way everyone is, that really rules everyone out for being president or prime minister, unless you're perfect. And that means that someone who's been, what's it called when you bring someone up in a way is the, the manufactured to be who they, who they need to be and then it'll be sort of like a royal family um, situation where they're bringing their kid up to be the president and it will just stick with family lines because they'll bring them up people who are on one side can run riot be your TikToks, mess around i don't know do a chili in contest or even worse and then you get the other side of the small minority of people who are just being It's like China, what they do with children to put them in the Olympics, right? They're not allowed to do anything else, apart from train ping pong or train badminton and that that way, they're going to be professionals and that's all they're going to know how to do, what to do and how to do. And when you try and have a conversation with, I don't know if you've ever seen one of them manufactured people try and conduct an interview, but they don't actually know anything apart from what they specialize in. It's a bit disturbing to watch. But that's how you I mean a deep,
1: deep, deep face, a deep fake host, you mean?
2: Um, no, the, so, do you know, in the Olympics, you get a candidate um, from China. I,
1: I I know that point, but uh, the, the later point that you made about, uh, someone who, some agent that doesn't know anything, what was that comment? Sorry. Oh, no.
2: So when they interview the people who have been manufactured to, to play a certain sport, When they have a conversation with them about anything else, Ah. they don't know anything. So, I see, I
1: see. I'd I'd misunderstood where you were going with that. Yeah, I was
2: like ranting to be honest.
1: (laughs) No, no. So, so, but I think it's a good point, right? If if you if you look back historically, the fact that people didn't know Latin was sort of protective to the church, right? Because they got the they got told about the Bible from the priest, right? They couldn't go and look and see what it actually said, and When you look at presidents in the states like Reagan or or JFK or or these or George Washington and these people, there there was a sort of a a distance between the people and the leadership, and somehow that air of authority or mystery, when it comes to religion, I suppose, was protective for the leadership. Right? They, They were something other than your next door neighbor. They were they were the president. But now you can read Trump's tweets and you can see him, uh, you know, trying to pick up women at his casinos or where wherever he whatever he was doing in the past, right. and And I suppose this this breakdown of the wall is is just it's just new, right? this is this is we've never had it to this extent where you can really look into the bedroom of of the leadership it's very bizarre it's uh yeah and and i i'm very curious to see where it goes in in the future uh i hope that we don't just end up with a completely professional class that uh, is trained from three years old uh to become the next uh leadership that that would be quite sad i think
2: Uh, yeah it is new because we're we're getting to know these people not just on a professional level like we have done for how many years, because even like Rishi Sunak, he's got a YouTube channel where he uploads pretty much uh, <laughs> every day or every other day. And it's not just him talking about what he's going to do for the country or what he's going to do for anything professional, but he's adding a bit of personality into it. I don't know if he's identified, but this is the way it's going. but just let yourself out there, be personal, personable. I know obviously YouTube's massive, but he's got
0: his own YouTube channel and
2: that must say. Well, I
0: guess Trump sort of changed that side of uh, leadership because he used social media to his advantage and obviously got elected president. Before that, we had Barack Obama, who in my eyes was the last president who, you could probably put on that like prestigious level, and then after that we've had Trump and Biden, and I feel like we've we've seen a lot more of their flaws. Whereas I was still young when Obama was president, so I probably didn't look into his flaws that much. But to me, he seemed like a a professional at his job. He was like he was what you you'd imagine a president to be. Um. I think a lot of it as well is there's this from what you've just
2: said there is there seems to be a, a disconnect of authority from these people, maybe because we know him on such a personal level. Whereas Barack Obama, you, you sense a, a lot of authority from him because he sort of stood his ground. And from what you saw of him, he was very, he, he was very much that figure. Then you get Trump who had his authority, but had his flaws, which kind of, um stray away from his authority and then obviously you've got Biden and there's a lot of information coming out on Biden's flaws um as of recent and it just neglects their authority big time to most people
1: of course and I don't want to I I I don't want to throw a spanner too much into the works but um from what we've been saying but if you look at Trump you could argue that he sort of derived his authority I mean he got elected because he knew how to play the field right he knew how to use social media to his advantage and his opposition didn't really right the it, make america great again is a much better slogan than hope and change uh even if you don't like the guy um and the other example of course is um is musk right he he his brand is musk it's not tesla it's not SpaceX or the brand is Musk and he uses social media and the feeling that we're connected to him to actually build his power. Right. So maybe, maybe what's going to happen is we're just going to have a shifting, it's just a shifting game. We're going to be playing a new game where the presidents are going to look very different to Reagan and Washington and, and, and so on. So yeah, I, it, I'm I'm not really saying too much here I, I, because I'm not really um, putting pitching my tent in any sort of particular location. I'm just saying there there are all these different possibilities, and I'm very much curious to see which direction it goes. I don't really know where I'd place my bets just yet.
2: Yeah, I think because uh, you've been talking about Elon as well, and especially because we're coming into the digital, or well, we're, we're quite well into the digital age and the age of technology, could it be that? current structure of government sort of leadership is outdated. And in fact, we need to go for more of a technology sort of route where... I'm not saying this, this is just a theory, by the way, but someone of the caliber of Elon Musk has the potential to become the equivalent of a president and run a country because they can pull so many strings at once within the field of technology because look at ChatGPT and look at the future of everything. It's all going to be based around technology. So you've got someone like Biden who probably still asks someone to help him set up his phone when he gets a new phone. Can he actually run a country which is primarily run by technology anyway? Or should we be looking elsewhere for for some different skills um, to be running a country of that power?
1: Do you think scientists would make good leaders? I, I I'm curious to see what your answer is with respect to this.
2: To fill in the gap of well, I'm not saying the gap, but to to evolve and to change. I think scientists should be the number one um sort of field to look to look at. But I don't think it should be a scientist. I think it should be a board of scientists because I'm not super, super um, screwed on with all forms of science, but I obviously understand how complex it is and how sort of separate it all is. It's similar to, well, politics, I guess, anyway, because you can believe, or I don't want to say scientists believe, but they sort of go down certain routes within the profession of science. with politics politicians they sort of say right we're going to do this law this law this law and this law but one guy saying it all yeah he has like a potty around him but having a board of scientists who all conduct different sort of theories and they're all working on completely different sort of sides of science together around the table to actually work out and i think i kind of started tying science into spirituality and i don't think there's much spirituality at the top level of politics at all and i think that's something that the west are missing out on big time is there's no spirituality left it's literally being um sucked out of the system completely i don't know what your what do you
1: what do you mean there what's what's the uh connection between science and spirituality
2: so I am like very much new to all of this since I've been on my journey. I've been finding that a lot, but you can connect a lot of science um, in terms of, and I'm, I'm not a professional on this. I'm just going to sort of say my answer, but it's going to come across really amateur, um, but do you know, when you look at like, atoms and neutrons, protons, that sure. yeah. links to what I've been learning about ancient spirituality, for example, I've been looking into Hinduism. I brought up sort of in a Hindu family, but not very strict. So I've never actually looked into Hinduism recently, because I've come into spirituality a bit more, because it's something like Aaron's pushed pushed me more and more into. I've found like the old Hindu gods were actually named after what they called elements of an atom. So mm-hmm. if you look at Lord Shiva, I don't know which element of it, it it, um, the Lord was named after, but it was named after part of a atom. So they've connected from what we call science today. They called it spirituality back then. Mm -hmm. And the same way they sort of define what's going on with, on the earth, from the way the stars are set up at current time, that can be considered both science or spirituality, depending on how you want to sort of go around looking at it. So I, I am seeing more and more connections in there. It's not something which is preached about a lot or sort of spoken about much, but I'd be like more than happy to hear your your thoughts on that <laughs> that theory.
1: <laughs> well, I, I've got a few different thoughts. Um so of course, you know, I'm I'm a scientist and, and so the, the big difference between religion and science is that Science is uh, systematized. It's a systematic way of uh, drawing in information and in data, and then dealing with that data. Right. Um, so when we didn't know very much about the world, religion was there to answer questions, and it was very, very important to people. Uh, the world must have been a very confusing place. You know, you're you're, you're a hyper intelligent ape, uh, and you can see lightning coming down from the clouds, and you can feel the the power of uh, nature. And there are scary animals in the dark, and you know you want to you want to explain where you come from. And so there there are some aspects of science and religion that are similar in the sense that there's sort of this drive to explain uh, death and, and these other things that are confusing. And I think a lot of people, a lot of scientists are a little bit dismissive of religion. Um, but i I think I think some of the dismissals that I've heard are sort of missing the point that religion was extraordinarily important uh, in human history, in our development. And they they it's actually quite. So, the there's this, yeah. So, so I, I I I see that religion was in some sense a necessary step that humans went through, and but but I, science is these days somewhat separate from it. Um, I, I I would say. It, I would, I would say spirituality and science can coexist, but they're not necessarily, you know, there's not some sort of one to one correspondence between the two. Um,
2: can you see sort of, like you said, they're not like for like correspondence, but can you see on the sort of deeper, deep level that there is the possibility that science can connect with spirituality?
1: Sure. I, I think so. There's, there's people say there are, there are no religious scientists. Of course, that's completely false. I know many uh, people who are religious and scientists. Um, Yeah. I I don't really know how to answer that question. Uh, You know, I, I, uh, I think it's, it's part of being human that you you will give meaning to things. Um, you know, if, if we weren't a, the fact that we're communicating, right. It means we're able to, you know, we're using, we're imagining GPT as a concept in this conversation. We don't have it directly in front of us. Our, you know, th- there's no other animals that we know of that are able to even do that sort of that small tasks is conjure up these fictions that the fiction fictions like money and, and things like this our whole society uh runs on a fiction essentially and that same ability now i'm, I'm not calling spirituality and religion this of thing i'm not going to jump in and call it a fiction but the, the same power that is in your brain that allows you to deal with concepts like money uh it's, it's those same tools and mechanisms that allow us to generate uh these these sort of religious concepts and th- th- there's there's something to that right in the sense that if you so i i grew up in sort of a christian setting let's say uh your your uh uh your family was originally from india or um you're both english obviously but
2: yeah my Oh dad was not he was born in England but his parents were born in India. He's England born. Um and then my mum she's English. She's white English.
1: Mm-hmm. So so I the thing that I find interesting is that so money doesn't really exist it's a concept but it does rule the whole world, right? We 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 go to work every day for 8 hours uh, so the numbers in our bank balance change, right? And and so, so it's very obvious that there are concepts that we fabricate, which nevertheless have sort of a back reaction on the world. And one of my favorite stories is, have you ever read um, The Conquest of New Spain by Bernal Diaz? No. Nope. This is my favorite book of all time. I, I highly recommend Reading it, but Bernal Diaz was a conquistador who uh, was with Cortes when he destroyed the uh, Aztec civilization, right? When he went into Mexico, and and the thing that I found so this, this, the reason why it's very uh, it's an amazing book is because you can you get a first hand account of what it was like to first land in in Central and South America, and. It, do yourself a favor just go go get the book and read it it's it's very very good but the the thing the the reason why i bring it up is because the the people believed that god had given them a mission to to go and conquer the the people that sort of own the land right and it was almost certainly that belief that if you read the story, you'll see the difficult situations they they went through. And they were able to topple a civilization that was, they had like a thousand men or something, right? If you add up all the men during the entire mission, it was like, one. I'm going to get this wrong, but 1,200 people, let's say. And they toppled a civilization with potentially hundreds of thousands of people inside of it, right? And a big part, a big component of that was that they really believed that God had given them this mission, <laughs> right? They they had God on their side. And I I think there is power to the notion that so what religion does is and what spirituality does is it gives you a framework and it allow it's sort of like a communication tool that allows people to act as as one in this this big cohesive uh force and It it sort of it holds together much like money does. It 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 held societies together
2: like a set of rules for everyone to follow and abide by and keep everyone.
1: Yeah, in in some sense, in some in a certain sense, uh, God is real in the sense that it's even if you don't believe in God, uh, and I'm not religious, but if the concept has. You know the fact that all these different people believe in 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 God makes them act in a certain way, and and in that in that sense, even if you're not religious, um, it's it's real, right? In the same sense that money is, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at.
2: There's things that are man-made and there's things that are natural. Yeah, but 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 so uh, to
1: answer my own question, I asked you if if I think if you think uh, scientists would make good leaders. And I, I, think, I think your answer was good in the sense that uh, I, I don't think any particular scientist would make a good leader. And I think scientists are necessary to make uh, good decisions. For example, what sort of COVID policy should we implement, that sort of thing. Um, but if you look at how science is run, I'm kind of skeptical <laughs> that they would do a better job than the politicians. Um, because science is itself a little bit of a mess.
2: Um, Why did you say that?
1: No, I, you know science is run off other people's money right it, it doesn't in general generate money itself it's it's not a closed system so scientific leaders make you know they 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 go out and they they ask for grants and then they have some really small program that they're working on um there are counter, there are examples of big organizations that have been very successful like CERN and places like this but in general um, the structures that are implemented by science are very different to the structures that politicians implement. Um, you, you know, you, you need your, you need your country to be financially viable. Otherwise the entire thing collapses. You, you, you won't be able to apply for grants. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just very different games that the scientists and politicians are playing, but on, on individual issues. So for example, like I said, how should we respond to COVID or, you know, climate change, or whatever you re- you do need scientific advice to, to make those decisions and make, uh, the correct course of action. You, you need someone who's an expert in that area to, to advise you correctly. Uh, if you're a politician, and you, you've never dealt with climate change, or you've never thought about whatever the topic is of the day that Barack or, or, um, uh, whatever leader uh, is dealing with any given time
0: yeah so like a president or prime minister isn't an expert in one certain area they're just they're sort of the overseer and then the people below him, they just delegate the jobs to them and get the feedback and make the decision at the top
1: right or or whatever the structure is yeah
0: yeah exactly. I, I, disaster yeah. sort of how I imagine the structure i don't know 100 how it all works but I I,
1: one thing that i've so i've always wanted to have A discussion on my podcast about um so a topic that I'm very curious about and I know nothing about at all is what political bargaining looks like. So so for instance, uh let's say you're the you're the minister for finance or whoever you are, what kind of policies do you have to agree to enact in order to gain enough political capital to Uh, spend on your own pet topics if you if you see what i'm saying what what does it look like as you you accumulate political capital to enact the 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 policies that you're personally interested in and also what is the trade-off between um so in in democracy and, and if you're the leader in a democracy and you think that some policy is important where do you draw the line between what you think is important and what the your constituents are voting for so uh, questions like this i'm I'm really curious about and I, i'd love to uh have someone on the podcast that talks about these things i just haven't found the right way to tell a story uh, is this sort of the direction you're interested in your own podcast or you're more interested in in sort of um in uh culture wars and and uh what sort of direction do you want to go with uh, in as as you go forward and grow the podcast
0: um, well we we'd like to talk to a range of people um so, for example, you're our first scientist on um and you've got a completely different view than the last person we had on Carl, who he's an ordinary guy a landlord from America who's going through some problems um, but his story is obviously completely different to yours. We spoke to him about the Issues he's facing at the moment with current policies that have been brought into America that's making him, as a small landlord, he's living out of his van because he can't get rid of his tenants that aren't paying him rent, so he can't pay for his mortgage. Um, so he's he's in a right pickle at the moment. Um, but like this podcast we're doing with you is completely different and it's given us a different talking points and different ways of looking at the world and different uh, and trying just, just to gain a different understanding to enhance our understanding mm-hmm. of things what what is
1: it, is he going to be able to get out of this situation what do things look like for him uh, sounds horrible
0: the, yeah yeah um so <laughs> they've there's they've they've got this scheme where when covid happened um The tenants were more protected than the landlords so landlords weren't allowed to evict the tenants so he's stuck with this tenant and they've brought in another policy to help the landlords but he's worried if he so what will happen is the government will pay the landlord to pay for his mortgage um but he's worried if he takes that money then his tenants locked in for another 12 months but he wants the tenant out um. So he's going through the process at the moment. He said by June, I think, he's mm. hoping. He the to like he's playing for himself, hasn't he? Yeah, but he's uh, he's struggling at the moment.
1: So he's losing huge amounts of money. He doesn't have a house. And these tenants, there's no... There's, the legal structure doesn't allow him to evict these people. Uh, even Even if he wants to live in the house himself. So it kind of makes sense to me that you should be able to... There should be some protections in place to stop landlords just kicking people out willy-nilly but if you personally want to live in the house uh there should be a. Path- i think
0: that's the process he's going through at the moment for him to move into the house but he's struggling to get a uh, get it all through it's taking longer than he anticipated
2: and he wants to kick someone out who's not paying because he can't kick the ones out that are paying because if he kicks them out and then he moves in, he won't be able, that's another income. Right.
1: Cost. I see. I see. I see. Because he, he can't afford it in any case. He, he needs to live in a smaller situation.
2: Yeah. So uh, it's kind of new to me, the eviction, um, the eviction ban in it's called the eviction ban, right? In America,
0: it doesn't make any sense whatsoever.
1: Oh, so he was American.
0: Yeah. New York. But like, the podcast, we would, we would never speak to somebody from New York about who's a small landlord going through these problems. So it's like, it's opened our eyes up to somebody who's living a completely different life to us and just gaining an understanding on what their views are on things and understanding what they're struggling with.
2: Yeah, I guess it's about exploiting the internet to get to know more about the world from first on. Because obviously, what I wanted to go into with you a bit more as well was, you were from australia and now you've ended up in or well, you've been to canada which is similar to australia not weather wise <laughs> obviously
1: <laughs> cold australia
2: well what would you say it's quite similar in terms of culture
1: yeah i, I uh i love canada i i actually um I really disliked Canada when I first arrived. It took me a while to warm to it. But I How old I, was really, you when you went there? I would have been 23, 24, something like that. Um but I I, I really love Canada I, I spent five years there, uh near Toronto. And I the, the thing that I yeah, I, I I love Canadian people, how hospitable they are. I if I had the chance, if I could live anywhere in the world, um other than Australia or Germany, I'd probably, I think Canada would be my next choice. I I very much enjoyed the holidays and and the, the, you know, going out and being in the snow and all that sort of thing. But um, yeah, otherwise, yeah, it's probably the closest country to Australia other than England culturally.
2: So a lot of people say when they've moved from a hot country, they actually get sick of the sun. And then they want to move somewhere cold, and they appreciate cold weather. Is that true because being in England, we can't imagine anyone that gets sick of the sun.
1: so the England is a very different prospect to Canada because your your winters are sort of muggy right when when you're in when you're around toronto these areas that snow is real it, it sort of hits <laughs> you, you can go ski well, around Toronto it's not very good for skiing but the snow is is deep and and you can actually go walking on the lake and and uh you you get a proper winter and that can be very enjoyable right I I, I went out to friends sugar shacks where they make uh, maple syrup and you know you're there by wood fire or, or you go camping out in the snow um it, it, it's it's a much more pleasant prospect to to what we get in Central Europe and and where you are in in uh, in the UK. Yeah, but I I I uh, I would highly recommend if you've never experienced a proper winter, uh, if you get the opportunity. It, it, maybe it's just me personally. I I, I love it. I, I like it just as much as a nice summer.
0: And the summer in Canada is quite nice as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's the surprising thing. I when I first moved over to Canada, I'm, I'm such an idiot. I, I got rid of a lot of my warm clothing and went over with not nearly enough, and it was scorching when I first arrived. Uh, yeah, so I, I I learned very quickly that it very easily hits 30s in in, in Canada as well. Um, they they have beautiful summers and beautiful winters.
2: So what what are you doing? Are you because obviously you've travelled from country, to country from country to country? Are you to settle somewhere or are you looking for more places to go and visit what What are you actually doing in each country are you learning because i know you've studied in certain countries and then worked in certain countries are you is there like an end goal of where you want to be
1: uh there's the dream and then there's reality my <laughs> i mean what, what i would love ultimately if if i could do it i, I would love to live for example, in Germany from say 1st of May through to October, and then Australia <laughs> for the remainder of the year. Just repeat that. That would be brilliant. Um, but no, so I, I first moved to Canada to do my master's and PhD. There's a really nice institution that I was very lucky to get into uh in a small town called Waterloo, which is sort of southwest of Toronto and or mainly west of Toronto. Um it's do you know BlackBerry the phones? So Mike Lazaridis, who was one of the founders of of BlackBerry, decided to build a theoretical physics institute. So he he donated some huge amount of money, uh, and I was very lucky to uh, get accepted in uh, for a master's program. And so I did my masters and then my PhD, so my doctorate um in I guess, theoretical physics. So I, I specialized in uh, a type of geometry and its applications in particle theory. So I did that there in, in Canada. Uh, and then again, I was very fortunate to uh, get a postdoc position at the Max Planck uh, here, just outside of Berlin. So that's what, so I sort of moved for work. It um, I, I didn't move for the winter or anything like that. It, it was really just for work. And there, there would, there wasn't the equivalent program in Australia uh for me to. I, I was very, I've always been in, interested in really fundamental physics and uh theory in particular, and there were just better op- opportunities outside of Australia, and and so that's why I left ultimately. But if if I could, I, I would, I would like to mix up Australia and maybe Central Europe somewhere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
2: With what you're doing, I wrote this down, and I didn't know whether to ask or not, but I'm going to ask. <laughs> With what you're doing in physics, are you doing anything around string theory?
1: So, no. So, uh, <laughs> no. What I specialize in is, so to, to draw a picture of what I do. Uh, you're probably familiar with Euclidean geometry, right? When you were in high school, you play around with um, triangles and squares and this sort of geometry, right? You have sort of a flat sheet and you can draw uh, shapes and lines and angles. So that Euclidean geometry is sort of the geometric setting uh, that Newton played in, right? If you imagine balls dropping and and rockets flying, that sort of thing, If, if, if those are the objects that you're interested in, then Euclidean geometry is pretty good, right? Uh, but then if you, in sort of the start of the 20th century, we, Einstein worked out uh, special relativity. So dealing with, uh, things that are traveling very close to the speed of light. And, uh, maybe if you were dealing, uh, with sort of relativistic objects, then the geometry you might want is hyperbolic geometry. Um, then we also discovered, um, uh quantum mechanics and sort of the, the geometry that uh deal that you'd play around with there is maybe symplectic geometry so there, there are these generalizations of geometry from sort of the euclidean geometry that you're familiar with from high school uh, and the one that you're probably most familiar outside of that euclidean setting is what's called Ramanian geometry which deals with sort of curved space times right? so when people talk about gravity then you have to you have this sort of this generalization of uh, geometry, called of Euclidean geometry, which you, you'd call Romanian geometry, which deals uh, with with curvature and the dynamics of that kind of curvature. Um, so, what I deal with is another generalization of geometry, which is it's in, it's important, or pe- people find it interesting when you want to deal with. Um, a space-time which also has particles inside of it so the idea is that you have some inter some structure some geometric structure that just dis- that y- you implement in order to describe uh particles at each point in space-time uh so that's that's what i was playing around with I, so my background's in what's called non commutative geom- geometry so cons non commutative geometry um, and i can tell you a little bit more about that if you want but um yeah it, it, it doesn't so string theory is is another uh, approach uh to quantum gravity yeah.
2: right right okay so yeah tell us more about what it is that you're currently working on yeah
1: so what i'm so I, I don't get much time these days to, to work on this but the, the 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 main problem that i'm interested in at the moment is so we, we have this theory called the center model of particle physics it's the best theory that we have currently for describing all the particles and forces that we see in experiment um and it's it's constructed uh in in a language uh which is called um renormalizable quantum field theory okay and and uh, this framework is very different to the way you describe gravity right so so the center model of particle physics is a quantum field theory that describes the fact that we see electrons, neutrinos, um, so there's quarks, uh, as, as well. Um, th- then there are the three fundamental forces, uh, that are described by, uh, the center model. So the, the, uh, the hypercharge, the weak force and the strong force. Um, and so what would be nice is if you had, if you were able to, so the, we know that these two theories the, the semi-particle physics and and our, the way we describe gravity they don't really play well together it's you, you can't construct your gravitational theories as a renormalizable quantum field theory and so uh, one of the biggest one of the biggest missions in physics for the past 50 or so years 50 or 100 years has been to combine these two bits of theory together and there are various approaches um, string theory is one of one approach but what i've been interested in uh is a particular question which is is it possible to describe the standard model geometrically in the same way that you describe gravity so you usually people try to cram gravity into the into the same framework that people describe particle theories with but you can go the other way you can you can say what would what would our particle theories look like if if we describe them geometrically Um, and so uh, what that looks like if, if you're interested in the the non-commutative geometry approach which is which I'm just which what I'm interested in is um you could imagine uh, so if you imagine the the room that we're in at the moment there are different ways of coordinatizing this room right you you might call this point uh, do do you does everyone watch on youtube or do you have people that just listen to the audio
2: Primarily, they just watch on YouTube.
1: Okay, so I I can use my hands and (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, so if you wanted to coordinate coordinate this this room, this you know geometry that we're living in, um, you you might call this point in 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 the room, you know, one three four, right? We're in a three dimensional space, so you just use three numbers to describe this location, and this one might be one three five and one three six and so on so that you associate numbers to all the point you know sets of three numbers to every point in space time well in in space Sorry, in in this room so so the way that we coordinateize regular spaces is with numbers sets of numbers so i look at geometries where instead of associating a number to each point you associate more complicated objects not just a number but something with more structure let's say and and the idea is that that structure uh, holds information about the sort of particles that can exist in your space. So that's the sort of generalization I look at. Uh, I, I'm interested in. And so these these geometric spaces you can't really imagine them, but uh, but they're well defined mathematically. Uh, and so I'm particularly interested in a question uh, which I've been interested in for a very long time and the question is it's it's I, I don't know i don't know how much in the way of particle physics you know but if, if you go away and you do an experiment everyone knows about the electron right you you've heard about the electron there are three types of electron right that that's that's something that most people don't know so there there are sort of for every fermion every sort of particle uh, that we see there are three copies and the three copies are just heavier versions of the of the copies that we're familiar so there's the electron and then there's sort of a heavier electron and an even heavier electron and in in your everyday life you only really deal with the the lightest ones the the, the other the more heavy uh, electrons let's call them are unstable and they'll they'll break down to the electron that we see uh, through various processes uh, right so and no one really knows why. We we just we see these uh, sort of three copies of all the matter that we that, that exists in the universe, and we don't really know why. And so, the the main problem that I am interested in at the moment is trying to explain why those three generations exist uh, geometrically.
2: Okay, when what when was it? How how do you get to that point in of of your life where? you go to school and you don't know much about anything. And to get to the position where you're in, where you're looking at such a complex theory, how does one get from school to the position you're in? How, if someone, how did you come across this question? Or, or how did you come across wanting to burning desire to find the answer? So first
1: off, I don't, I don't think scientists are special necessarily uh, i think more or less anyone could work on these problems uh the main thing is time right so uh it, it, the, the the main thing that dis- dis- distinguishes scientists from other people i would say is the fact that they're extraordinarily interested and they're specialists in in the particular questions that they're they're interested in and, and they've spent a lot of time on them so for me personally i i was just i I wanted to know what we knew about the world. I I, I wanted because see this is also one of the reasons why I I started the podcast. I was always very so I I love science documentaries. I, I I love all there's a lot of great science outreach, but a lot of the time when I when I would watch a documentary or listen to science journalists talk about science. I was never very satisfied. I, I would always come, you know. You can watch this brilliant program, you know, about the cosmos or whatever it is, and there's lots of pretty images, and you sit there and you imagine, you know, what's going on, and then you realize that once the television turns off, that you actually, you can't really, you can't regurgitate any of the information. Say so you didn't actually learn as much as you thought you did while watching, and so I, I really wanted to know when people talk about string theories. What do they actually mean? And, and when, what is an electron? What, what are these objects that people talk about and what do we actually know? And what are the open questions? And so I, I did a, a, an undergrad in uh, physics and also one in mechatronics. Um, and then I just, I took the opportunity because it arose to go to a master's and, when you start, it's it's not that I originally had this dream that I wanted to find out, you know, why it is that the. So we have, as I said, that we have this standard model of particle physics, and it has all these details in it, and we don't really understand. We can we can describe the particles we see, but we don't know why we see those particular particles. We don't know why there are there's a strong force, and why there's a, you know, why is it that uh, electrons have the charges they have, and and we don't we don't understand the reason for those things that we measure. We just know that that's what we measure in experiment. And these are the models that we have built to describe their dynamics, let's say. So to, to answer your question about how do you end up interested and with a burning desire for these particular questions, the answer is that you you go very slowly, right? You You start off as a school kid with no idea what's going on. And, and you decide you want to do an undergrad and because it looks cool and you don't, and you sort of blindly walk into, you just, you're just curious at every step, well, I, guess I it's suppose like- is the answer.
2: With most things, right. You need to, it's quite basic, but you need to learn the fundamentals of anything before, like you said, about the, the, when you watch a documentary on TV, something quite complex. Yeah. You feel like you've learned a lot, but yeah, when you turn it off, if someone asked you what, what if you just like listen to give us a few give us the top 10 facts that you've learned from that documentary, you won't probably won't be able to state them out because we don't know the foundations and the fundamentals of that top that certain topic. So yeah, I get what you mean to get to the level you're at, you need to first have a desire for the subject at whole and then sort of go a level further and a level deeper. And a level further and a level deeper and then that's how obviously you must have got to
1: yeah you you need you you need to spend time I mean a lot of so I have this experience where, well or I'll be at a party or speaking to people and they'll ask what I do or that they will ask me about some physics problem and and very often I get the impression when I speak to people that they won't they don't think they will understand what I'm talking about and so they just check out they they it's like um it's it's like they've made the decision I'm not going to be able to understand this so I'm not going to engage with I you know I I'm I'm asking the question out of politeness but I'm actually not going to engage with the answer because I don't think either it's not interesting or I don't think that I'm going to be able to uh digest it whatever it is that's being said and I, I think a lot a lot one of the things that scientists are good at is breaking down problems into smaller pieces that are digestible and working through them and it, it, if the average person realized that that they could actually digest even even very complicated concepts if if they had the opportunity the the average person well, not the average person. You were, you had this other guest on your podcast, right? That who who had all this trouble with his house. He he was he was dealing with this eviction, and he was essentially on the street, living in his car. That person doesn't have the opportunity to to think about why do we see three gen- generations of particles uh, in the standard model? What why is it that um, gravitational waves act in this particular way? Why you know? he is very much dealing with what's immediate in his life and he doesn't have the opportunity. That doesn't mean he's stupid or, you know what I mean? What I'm trying to say is that the, the the big thing that separates scientists from non-scientists is that they have had the opportunity, first of all, and that they're curious. And they took advantage of the fact that they were curious uh, to build up the opportunity uh, in many cases so um yeah, and
2: what you said as well about taking the time, that's definitely a fundamental part of it because I can imagine I've not been in this obviously not being a scientist, I've can't ever have been in that situation of being at a party, but I understand the scenario where you're trying to explain something to someone just out of but they're only asking you out of politeness. And maybe in a different setting setting that same person could be more patient and hear you out and actually use their minds to try and understand what it is that you're talking about. A lot of people unwillingly and subconsciously only want to put their mind on subjects they care about. If they don't care about it, then subconsciously they're just going to tune out and they're just going to move on to talk to someone else who maybe, I don't know, watched the Kardashians last week because that's where they want their mind to go. but. There are people, them same people who put them in a different setting, maybe add them into this podcast for a chat. They, on the podcast, you, you, you've turned your phone off. You've, you, you're you away from you, even though you're in technology, you are disconnected from everything and you're tuning into someone, someone else, someone else's experience, someone else's story. So you, it kind of, and that's another perk of the podcast game, I guess. It kind of gives you, you build that patience and that time to listen to someone and guess it's different with us because we genuinely have an interest in learning about this stuff but i am seeing with the way technology is and the way social media is a lot of people unplug a lot faster than if you were to have that same conversation with someone 20 years ago when social media wasn't around they would probably be slightly more inclined to to listen and to understand and to to have that patience
0: yeah you can sort of see already like people's attention spans on that great because we can see it with the YouTube shorts. We used to do um, one, this <laughs> sounds crazy, right? We used to do one minute shorts. And I said to Cam, "Well, we weren't getting much traction on them. So I said to Cam, "Well, maybe we should try doing 20 to 30 seconds. We started doing that and we, we seemed to get more traction on those ones. And I can't believe people can't focus for an extra 30 seconds and but that, it's te-
1: it's terrible, right? It, it's yeah. uh, so I'm personally very addicted to my phone, and I I I consume information uh, on my phone and my computer like crazy. I'm I'm just always reading something. That's where I find my guests for the podcast. And but it's it's not. So I'm I'm not a neuroscientist or anything like this. But I imagine what's happening to my brain is that I'm I, I scroll to some new article which is you know, I can read in a few seconds. I read the article, the headline, and I get that dopamine hit. Then I scroll to the next one. And I don't need to remember anything from the article I just read. There's no, it, there's there's not going to be a test later. There's there's no obligation on, on my my uh, side to do anything with the information that I've just consumed. And so if, if you're scrolling, again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but what I imagine you're doing is you're training your brain to just ignore all the information that's coming into it. Cause it's not going to be used <laughs> later on. You're, 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 you're squashing your attention span and making your brain just useless. And I've noticed the effect. I, I, so recently I started going for runs in the morning, every morning and trying to completely disconnect from my phone and from social media, not because I, I don't find it interesting, and not because there's nothing valuable there but because it, it trains my brain i think uh to act in a in a um in a setting that i don't think is very useful for anything of value that i have in my life um but but yeah so uh, yeah this this attention span thing is definitely a problem i i must say uh, for me personally
2: have you ever used tiktok or have do you use tiktok
1: I don't use TikTok. I ever used it. I've scrolled through it a little bit. I I've probably spent an hour on TikTok in total. Right.
2: Okay. I had it. Must be over a year ago now, and within a month of using it, I had to just delete it off my phone because I don't know what it is like. You know, you can feel what it is in your mind, but it's hard to explain what it is. But I could go on it at nine p.m. at night and I'll be on it just scrolling till midnight, three hours of just pure scrolling.
1: Did you find it easy to go cold turkey or was it difficult for you to stop?
2: I knew I had to stop. When I got to a point where I, that's where I stopped when I looked at the time and it was 12 a.m. Um, I hadn't been watching TV. Usually I'll get into bed, i would watch TV or read a book for an hour just to switch off. I was wired watching TikTok. The day well, I looked at the time and then I, when I woke up the next morning, I was like, my my mind still feels a bit weird. Is it that addictive? I just need to disconnect from it and get rid of it. Yeah, it was that bad. And I'm still here. I've talked to people about it now. And I was talking to a client of mine um, from my other side of my life. And his kid is 11 or 12. They just got a phone anyway because they're just going to high school. And he looked at the watch time of his kid's phone per day on TikTok and he was doing six to seven hours a day on TikTok. And that was on a school, a normal school day. So this app is that dopamine, they've, they they call it a, a, a weapon. Well what they've got on the app is gold for whoever's created it, I guess, for the purpose.
1: Because the each each clip starts immediately and you can just think to yourself I'm just going to watch this last one and then whatever. I I can go sleep or do some work or whatever it is that I want to do. But then the next one comes and I'll just watch. It's just 20 seconds and it's just 20 seconds. and It's just 20 seconds. And then I suppose six hours passes.
2: And you don't realize all these (laughs) 20 seconds are... Because it's just 20 seconds, you don't... You know when like you spend £2 or $2 or €2 here, €2 there, you don't actually count that into the bigger grand scheme of spending. some For some reason, psychologically, it just doesn't, uh, other than if you were going to spend um £100 or €100 Euros on something, you would think more about that. I think it's the same sort of format they've got there, because it's just 20 seconds, just quick ones. You're just thinking, oh, I'll just watch another one. Because if you watch a movie which is two hours long, you wouldn't put another movie on afterwards, really. But you would watch five episodes of a series, and think, because you think, Oh, they're, they're only half they're only half an hour. they're only 45 minutes
1: it won't it won't waste the rest of my day and then and then the worst part about it is if you get to four hours in you're like oh i've wasted the day anyway uh, what work can i do now I, I i may as well just treat myself to a few more uh, episodes of whatever it is that you're interested in i think so that it's definitely a weakness of the platform that you're running and which I'm running. I, I have, I think my average episode would be two hours or an hour and a half, something like that. The longest episode, the longest interview I gave was seven hours, something like this. Wow. Uh, and, I, and I broke that into two episodes you, just because you, you it was. You do
2: that with no, with no breaks. Yeah. You... Yeah. You eat or stop at all.
1: We, we didn't stop, we, it just kept going. And I, I also have had episodes that. Um, I have a lot of content outside of the actual interview that is published Uh, and some of my favorite ones as well. So there's a lot of material there that isn't being published, even though I don't make any cuts to the almost no cuts. So there are a few occasionally, there are bits and pieces that get cut out at the request of the guest, but more or less everything goes on uh, as you see it. Occasionally, occasionally there'll be some problem with equipment, and that forces me to make cuts. But um, yeah, no, I, I, and I, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that this is not necessarily the best way to grow the platform, uh, for sure. I should be using our dopamine and other
2: <laughs> exploiting it, right? Um, yeah. Another thing as well is if if you go on TikTok when you first go onto it, um, this is something. I've discovered sort of since deleting it, they will flood you with bright colors to begin with, to get you or sort of whatever flowing in in your body. But also with YouTube, if you create a whole new account or a new page and access a, a clean slate of YouTube, if you look down all the thumbnails that are sort of not within an algorithm, you'll see all these bright colored thumbnails using blues, yellows, greens, uh, pinks just all over the place just to really get you going. And it, it sort of feels like you're in what probably paradise would be um, envisioned as when you go onto these clean slate, no algorithm platforms. But then when I go into mine now, it's not much color on my algorithm one. There's not much color coming out of it. I don't know if it's sort of a reflection of me and my... Oh god, <laughs> just I'll a very
1: grey person. The, <laughs> I have a technique that I've used to break addiction uh, that I haven't really heard many people talking about, but which I find very useful. So maybe you guys will find it interesting as well. Many years ago, I was very addicted to Reddit, and there are other aggregate sites that I've looked at, like Cora and places like this, because I just find find it very interesting reading all sorts of things about the world. But it it's not very good for my productivity. So I, I have to get rid of these uh, things. And, and I found that if I just went cold turkey, I just stopped. Uh, I would start to drift back to it after a few weeks. But the, one technique that I use, which was, ex- it works for me really well, is I would find someone who also has an addiction. Uh, a similar thing. I, I go on YouTube too, too much, or I go on this too much, or I do that too much. And I would make a bet with them uh, that you have to stick to. The loser has to buy the other one. You know, uh, uh, you know, ten beers or something like this. And somehow, actually, putting it doesn't even have to be that big. But having that very small bit of accountability behind you, uh, it, it works wonders for me. I, 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 I don't know how long ago now, ten years ago or seven years ago or something. I just completely stopped reading Reddit uh, using this mechanism. So it's
0: <laughs> one, one thing I do to sort of counteract addictions. So I, I wouldn't say I was massively addicted, but do you know when you just sat there wasting time on social media? So I'll scroll them once on Instagram and it must have been like Cam said, it, the time just flies by when you're scrolling. Um, so I just sat there and I thought, I'm going to delete the app. So I just deleted the app, but I allowed myself to access it through the browser. So I just tapped in www.instagram.com made it more difficult for me to get on it. So it's not just unlock your phone and the first thing you press is Instagram. I have to go into Google Chrome and type it in and go and access it that way. Since I've done that, I barely even use Instagram anymore. So I've sort of introduced that technique into like my working day as well. So if I find I'm going on my phone too much, I'll put my phone upstairs in my room and then work because it makes it hard for me to go and access my phone Then, rather than having it right next to you, you can just pick it up. The and ease of I access sort
1: of, is completely gone.
0: Yeah, that's how I sort of
2: counteract it. The think about having your phone out when you're working and definitely within my sort of work because mine's pretty creative and sometimes you've got to wait even a couple of seconds for something to load. When you're waiting for something to load, I automatically just pick up my phone, even if the thing's only going to take five to 10 seconds to load and then I end up being on my phone for even if it's 30 seconds to a minute the things already loaded and then I come back into the zone and I'm like right what was I doing again
1: hmm. that's the other thing you need to be bored to be creative I think for me personally my most productive times these days are when I'm on a long plane trip or when I'm on a train trip somewhere because I'm completely disconnected from any everything and I can just work with no one no interruptions of any sort. Uh, I should just spend all my time on trains. I think, uh, it'd be the ideal office for me, but, uh, that's another thing about y- your question. How do you, uh, how do you, how do you get from being a high school student through to working in some area of research? You definitely need to be bored at some point along there. You, <laughs> you need to, you need to yeah, pour time into it, but, um, yeah, the, I don't know if I answered your question well enough uh, when it comes to how do you get into a certain position?
2: Oh, kind of, because what I was trying to get to with it was it basically what you've said, right? Um, it takes a lot of commitment. When you say commitment, it takes a lot of willpower to, to get into such a, such a, uh, I don't know if we call it technical, what would you call it? It's such a specific part of physics that you're in. What I was going my my side question after that was going to be, do you guys uh, within the science industry, or do you as an individual ever think about the up and coming scientists of the next generation? Are they going to be able to? I guess it it does sort of benefit. We've just gone on that tangent about social media because are they going to be able to commit to this sort of lifestyle? And is that something you've ever thought about, or does that is that anything that worries? the industry.
1: Do, do you mean uh, because of a an attention deficit or, or for other reasons?
2: Well, because of primarily attention, like are people going to be able to... Lack of boredom. People
0: uh... are bored because
1: TikTok,
2: TikTok's available. Mm. And if everyone's on TikTok, because I know that TikTok in China is different to the TikTok in the West. The TikTok in China would probably push you to become a scientist.
1: Yeah, they, they, they actually prevent you from watching the Kardashians or whoever. Yeah. So generally speaking, I'm worried about uh, attention spans and that sort of thing. But when it comes to science specifically, I'm worried about other things. So the, the things that I'm concerned with are things like One thing that concerns me is that uni- the, the universities are essentially businesses. And so the structure that they implement through which people do science is put in place to benefit universities. It's not put in place to benefit scientists, science, or the government that funds the universities necessarily. And it's it's those sort of things that worry me and concern me most uh, when it comes to the future uh, of research and, and who's going to be doing it. So to give you an example, it's quite beneficial for universities to. So when I did my postdoc, when I when I moved from Canada to Germany, I had a one a two year position, and in theoretical physics, you need to apply for jobs one year before. You you end your contract, uh, sort of. You 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 get your job, you finish it off your contract, then you start the new one. And so what that meant is that exactly one year after I started my postdoc, I had to apply for a job again, right? And then I got a one year extension, which meant that then I had to apply again. And so I went through five years applying for jobs at every single point uh, during my postdoc at the at the Max Planck. Um, and that sounds fine when you think about it to start with, but the competition is so high that you have to apply for a lot of jobs to guarantee that you'll get a position at the next stage. And so you have people out there that are spending months of every year on job applications rather than on research. And this is across all of science. Uh, it's worse in some fields than others, particularly ones that are uh, have low funding or high competition or where, you know, where lots of people want to uh, be working in that area. And Essentially, universities—they construct their own supply-demand curve, right? Because they generate the PhDs and they employ them. If you know what I'm saying, so they can they can set up a system which has everyone squabbling uh, for positions, and they they sort of suck the youth out of uh, the next gen- every generation that comes through. They. And a very small percentage of postdocs and and young scientists who people go in with very bright eyes and and they want to make the world better and they're very curious. And what I'm concerned about is a lot of these people end up sort of very disgruntled and pushed out the other side of the the machine. And I think it's quite sad because I know a lot of very good scientists, excellent scientists who... Um struggled the whole way through their uh, young careers. Um, and so that anyway, so so it's those sort of things that concern me and another thing that concerns me is I am so so if you're a country if if you're a let's say, for example you're you're a government and you want to you're interested in bringing clever people into the country. You, you, you're, are England, <laughs> you're, the, you're the English king, and you, you want to um, increase the number of uh, clever people coming in. Uh, what you would like is to suck in smart people and have them stay. But the way that our institutions work currently is you have a bunch of young people that come in for one or two years or maybe three years on a young postdoc, and because they're so concentrated on the fact that their co- contract is going to end, and they're going to be starting a new one, and they have to find a job, and they need to get publications out, and they need to they they need to in- invest in all these things have not, that have nothing to do with science necessarily, uh, or, or their careers or anything, but just just in staying employed. These young people don't invest themselves in the local community that they're where they're doing their postdocs, where they're doing their small, short contracts. So you have, it's very typical, I'm in Germany. It's very typical that you'll have a guy come from India or someone come from America and they'll come in, they'll spend two years in Berlin and then they'll leave and off they go. They'll go to the next, um, their next appointment somewhere. And so they, there is no staying power. There's no, Germany is not benefiting from the fact that it's sucked in that person. That's, okay, they're there for two years. But if you had a position, right? That uh, if you had a fixed contract that was four or five years, then then that person is going to they'll find a partner locally, they'll become invested in the local community, and a large percentage of people don't they go into industry after to after research careers, and if you're paying the bill for the you know you know if you're funding science, then wouldn't it be good if if those tax dollars if they they go not only to the science but actually bringing people in and getting them to stay in the area and build up uh the local economy and so there's there's something fundamentally wrong i feel with the way that uh, universities are currently being run and and so on and i can talk about this uh at length um because i'm i'm interested in i'm interested not in only on on the science but also for me personally, if I have a su- successful scientific career, I can, I can discover something. Let's say I can discover why there are three generations of particles or whatever the thing is that I want to um, uh, discover. But if I can have a slightly positive in- influence on, on the, the system itself more broadly, then a thousand scientists are going to come after me that do epsilon better uh, and and ultimately, the positive impact will be much larger. And so, so I'm I'm very concerned. I would I would like, if I can, to uh, help generate systems within science which allow scientists to do science better. So that's one thing that I'm yeah. I, I, this this is a very long winded answer.
2: No, it's um, really good. So does any of that connect with what you're doing on the technology side? Or have you thought about ways to connect with your machine learning side to rejig the system around a little bit? Or at least it might have been a thought that's just gone into mind. It might not be something that you're progressively doing.
1: Uh, It's one of the reasons why I'm doing the podcast, but the um, so I've been involved in institutions building. So there's a new uh, institution called the DZA that's being built in Saxony. So I played a small uh, role in 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 that institution, getting the funding, and and, and it's it's being constructed now, uh, but but no, I the direction I would go is is not not technological, uh, more sociological. So
0: are there other scientists calling for this sort of issue to be resolved in the of system?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is this is a big topic within science. You see it in in what you would hear about is that you would hear things like women in science and things like this. Uh, it, it, people are very concerned about helping uh, women in areas where they're underrepresented. And this is sort of one side of of the coin or, or one, one small aspect of a broader problem uh, in science, which is just very visible when it comes to, for example, minorities in science or, or women in science, but the, the, it's sort of like the canary in the coal mine let's say um there, there are broader issues that people are very concerned with
2: yeah that issue wouldn't exist at all if there was no one to actually conduct science
1: the, yeah.
2: the minorities or, or the or the uh, women in science so yeah like you said there is a broader issue so is that why you've got funding i don't know if this is something you want to talk about but why you got funding for the youtube um channel
1: uh somewhat somewhat i I, I was very fortunate that I I was able to get funding to, to help me work on the podcast because I, I wouldn't have time otherwise because of my other projects and work and so on. Uh, so I I'm very interested in working out ways of self-funding institutions. So I... I would like to find out if there are ways of breaking out of apply for a grant, do your work. So so, so the, the way that universities currently function, if you think about it, is if you go and look at the average professor, what that professor does is they sell their time to the university. They say, I'm going to do so and so many hours teaching a week or administration or whatever it is and in exchange i get to work in this fantastic place with some of the smartest people in the world uh, on this problem that i'm interested in and and they've done these studies where they where they look in, at the percentage of time that professors spend on their actual research sometimes it's as low as 17 percent of their time right it's, it's there, there, there are these large commitments that um, don't necessarily have anything to do with research. Teaching is wonderful. Of course, it's brilliant that um, good teaching is being done, but there's other uh, burdens like administrative burdens and so on. So what I'm interested in is asking the question. One of the questions I'm interested in is, is it possible to sell your time differently? Rather than selling your time to a university, is there a different way of going about things? So Im- imagine you had a situation where you constructed a an institution in which uh, you you earned money for the researchers through science outreach, or or, or that that's one possibility. Or th- there are different possibilities I'm looking at. And so initially, uh, the the podcast, I mean. I, I want to do the podcast for many different reasons. One of the reasons is I want to create a more authentic view of science. I I I currently the way that we view science is that there's some Einstein in the ivory tower who's some genius that has a spark of uh, intellect or a spark of um inspiration and they then they go to a glass window and write down big, long formulas, you know,
2: it's been <laughs> the camera looks like, at... you know, hasn't it? Science.
1: Yeah. And, but, but really there's huge collaborations and the people that are doing science are just normal people uh, that are just very driven and have, have the time and, and uh, the opportunity to work in a certain area. Um, so there's, there's that aspect. I, I want to create a, a more authentic view of what science actually is and who scientists are. I, I want to allow people who otherwise wouldn't have access to science like real science if 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 you want to go find out about whatever subject it is the opportunities you have is science journalism reading online but you don't really know where to read or going and looking at the papers right there's there's not really uh, many avenues for the average person so uh, the podcast wasn't attempt to give people the opportunity to see what that scientist specifically actually thinks about a topic, uh, at length. And, and so you, you, you get to grasp some of the ideas that they're mulling with and really see what it looks like. But, but then there's the other, other reason why I started the podcast and that was to see how difficult is it to, how much time do you need to spend, to build up an audience how how difficult is it to interest people in science is this a is this a way that you could sell your time as a researcher if you wanted to construct an institute that was based off and so this is just one of the ideas I'm I'm very interested in the background I, I have various projects on in the background I'm very interested in um creating because the scientific structures are wonderful for many people but for other people they're not and so i i want to see if there are different ways of playing the game um and so this is just one one aspect of, of of that sort of uh drive
2: yeah that's actually really really amazing um it's not something really that is publicized a lot about don't we call it, the struggles in the science industry it's not really publicized um much. For someone that's outside of the industry, you don't really hear much about it. I hear about the problems with universities and the way universities are set up, but that's sort of across the board, so to speak. Universities, like you said, they are just a business. And I guess that's where capitalism sort of plays its part in science then, because at the end of it, the university still needs to make money. From this whole, from from anything they do, it, it there's someone sat at the top who knows absolutely zero about science. That's looking at a spreadsheet of numbers and saying, "This number needs to be higher. What can you do?" And it and it results in scientists. It results in many different ground level people in industries suffering from the the choices that that um, universities make. Mm.
1: Of course, it's a great privilege to be able to work on, on essentially your own ideas and to have people that are curious to listen to it. It's, it's amazing that you can go, I've, I've given talks in front of large numbers of extraordinarily intelligent people on, on, on my research and they've sat there listening. And, and so it's a tremendous privilege to be able to, to, to do that. But, and you have to be realistic. As you said, these are businesses and they have to make money and how do they do that? But uh, so so, I, I I guess I don't really want to point the finger at universities and say they're doing a bad job or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying necessarily. What What I'm saying is I think there are other games that can be played. And I think this will become increasingly clear as time goes on. I, well, at least I hope it will become increasingly clear. And so uh, without pointing the finger and saying um, universities are archaic or anything like this, I, I just I just want to say there are other ways. And, well, and- yeah, I've got the <laughs> if- impressions
2: that what you're actually, the way you've you've explained it is an entry into science is somewhat monopolized into universities. There's no alternative routes in, if if I'm not mistaken, and there should be to keep everything fresh and to keep new, science is all about new ideas, right? So the new way of setting up um, a career in science or progression in science might mean taking it, taking an alternative route rather than just a university
1: exactly and 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 so if if you went back if you went back in time to the 1700s say and and you look at who was doing science it was the extraordinarily wealthy people who had means right they 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 were able to they had the time and they they could afford the expensive glassware <laughs> let's say and and in fact when you when you study physics if you get good physics lecturers one one thing that they will do is they'll they gift you with a, uh, with not just physics but the lore associated with physics so you learn all about tycho brahe and and his exploding bladder or you 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 hear about kepler and his was it kepler with a golden nose you you know you you, you hear about all these wonderful stories and and part of that is you learn about the fact that a lot of the the big guys were they had lord out the front of their name right and and the, these days there are, universities are brilliant but we're starting to see institutions founded by again wealthy people but you have for example the premier institute which is where i did my uh, my phd and my my masters that came from private funding to a large extent uh, there's also public funding uh, now uh, behind that institution but we're we're starting to see Different ways of doing things, but more or less everyone still is based either at a large government institution or a university. And you know, to, to some extent, I don't really see that changing. But what I see changing is potentially the the funding mechanisms behind. So if if I if I was to build my own institution today, I would still want to embed the institution somehow within the the current structure. You still need to have competence built into the the whatever you build, right. You, uh, accreditation and so forth. But, um, yeah, I, it would be nice if, um, there, there were just d- different mechanisms, uh, available to people. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, I agree. Would having different mechanisms of ills, people would that make the universities more sort of competitive on their side and make them better.
1: Uh, I think so. I, I, so. So it's a it's a it's a good question because I started off by saying that universities are doing things to benefit universities, not to necessarily benefit science or the individuals. So, and your question is, I guess I could I could understand your question in two ways. I could understand it as would this benefit benefit universities economically, and would it? make universities better as scientific institutions i'm guessing you were looking for the second question right
0: yeah well i'm guessing if a university is better as a scientific institution then it's going to benefit benefit it economically like further down the line anyway is that right
1: i don't know i i i'm not yeah i i I don't know so obviously at the moment there are there are these Ivy leagues that have huge endowments. Right. And it's very hard. <laughs> you can play this game. Go, if you go, um, go to your your favorite university and go look at the CVs of all the professors there. And you'll see that a large number of those professors did their PhDs and postdocs at sort of top institutions. What happens is those top guys sort of filter into the, uh, to the other institutions often. Um, because they're more employable, let's say. And so it must be very difficult for the average university to break the monopoly of these huge. In in the UK, you've got Cambridge and you've got Oxbridge. What what do you call it? Right? And you've yeah, got Oxbridge. The... Yeah. What What do you call? It? You've got the. There's a term for the the top tier of universities in the UK. Uh, what is it? It it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, I can't remember um, the name. I know there is one. I can't remember it. There
1: but it must be very difficult to to break that hold and to break into that top tier and and I suppose if there are different funding mechanisms which allow let's let's imagine you you can work anywhere then because you're being fun you're you have a different source of funding and you don't have to be tied to wherever it is then maybe there'll be other draws on people so for instance why why live in at the moment, there are many institutions that are built in the middle of nowhere because it's cheap to build institutions in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, maybe maybe I want to go live in Newcastle, Australia, and I have my own funding. So I I can bring my own funding to Newcastle, Australia. Why don't I go there? I can take my family there and so on. You know, maybe, maybe additional streams or different avenues of access to science and scientific funding... Will break down monopolies in, in that sort of way because now I I'm, I don't have to go work where you, where you tell me I have to work uh, for financial reasons. Yeah, um, will it make it at universities better? Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm more concerned with the um, the actual science that's being done uh, across more general. Yeah,
2: is it called the Russell Group? That's that's the one. <laughs> Yeah, it's a group of uh, twenty-four. Of the UK's top. Yeah, should we wrap this one up? It's great. Thanks. Thanks
1: again for inviting me on. So it's been a pleasure. Nice to speak to you, both.
0: Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Cheers, Joe. Bye, everyone.